0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and thanks for joining us at Back to the Bible Canada. During the program, we'll conclude week two of our series, The Power of the Gospel with Dr. Neufeld. Picking up from yesterday's study, we'll go through Romans chapter 7 verses 7 to 13 as we learn more about the life of sin. So let's listen now as we go back to the Bible.
1: Have you ever noticed that sin is incredibly complicated and righteousness, well, it's rather simple. Here's an easy example. Contrast in your imagination two different men. One was a virgin when he married his wife, and she's the only woman he's ever known intimately. Yes, he has been tempted, but he never yielded to it. And every night when he comes home and he's together with his wife, and they discuss their day, or they discuss the future, or they discuss the housework, or the kids, or they talk about the next vacation, or their finances. There's a kind of simplicity between them for what they appear to be is who they are. On the other hand, is the man who has a secret mistress, or maybe more than one, or perhaps a series of hidden sexual trysts. When he works late, or when he's on the road, he has what we might delicately call a lot of complicated relationships, and in order to compensate, he has to lie a lot, and he needs to remember which lies he's told and where, and he needs to keep his storyline straight. His unrighteousness is complicated. But more so, sin itself is a very complicated business. It often involves lies and cover-ups, excuses and secrecy. Anger and lashing out are often a part of it, and that often serves as a kind of defense mechanism to keep prying eyes from discovering what it really is. Sin has numerous back alleys and circular roads meant to confuse and bewilder. Sin also includes a facade in which what is behind it is not only not apparent, but what's behind it looks so very different from what is seen and presented. Sin is a complicated business, for the web that it weaves is never done, and the way that it functions continues to evolve and grow and become larger until it's unmanageable and, in the end, finally implodes on the sinner, resulting in a ruined life. The Bible says that's deadly, but in mercy, God has decided to uncomplicate sin. We may not like it, but he has simplified it in remarkable ways. He does it in two ways. First, he exposes it for what it is, and then he names it with penetrating clarity so that we can never doubt what it truly is. The facade is gone. Today we're studying Romans 7, 7 to 13, so let's start with verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Of course, this passage is a part of a wider discussion on the relationship between the Christian and the law. Paul insists he is not to be misunderstood. If, as he has argued, one of the fruits of our relationship with Christ is that we have been set free from the law, then some might misunderstand him. He wants to make it plain that the law is not a bad thing. Indeed, it's a good thing. Why? Because the law reveals sin. And one of the reasons for that is that the law uncomplicates sin. Let's see if we can illustrate that. Many of you know the story of how to boil a frog. A frog is a cold-blooded animal, which means that the temperature of its blood changes with a change of the outside temperature. So if you throw a frog into boiling water, if he can, he will quickly jump out. He knows boiling water equals death. But apparently, and of course I haven't tried that, Um, But if you put a frog into a pan of lukewarm water, he will sit there quite happily ribbiting away or whatever frogs do when they're happy. But if you're careful to turn up the heat ever so gently, you can gradually bring the water to a boil and boil a frog to death without him ever noticing the difference in the temperature because... Well, he's a cold-blooded animal, and the temperature of his blood is gradually rising with the external temperature. In short, he has no objective means of determining the external temperature. Did you know that spiritually, we're all cold-blooded animals? Just a generation ago, it was considered wrong to have sex with anyone outside of marriage, and today it's considered normal, and some even think of it as healthy behavior. Same is true for homosexuality, pornography, and on and on it goes. Our sexually charged culture is now the temperature of our inner selves. There are a lot more examples, of course. Just a generation ago, it was considered selfish to express love for yourself, and today it's considered a necessary ingredient to emotional health and succeeding in life. Just a generation ago, it was considered a horrible sin to kill your unborn baby. Today, it is considered a right in a free society. Just a generation ago, Christians warned that we must bring the gospel to every single person because no one has a hope in eternity without faith in Jesus Christ. And today, it is considered by some to be intolerant and lacking in understanding to talk that way. Just a generation ago, we learned how to defend our faith in a world of multiple religions. Today, many think it virtuous to argue that all religions are similar at the core. Now, I don't want to discuss each of these items only to say that we have no objective means of determining the temperature because our internal spiritual sense is cold-blooded. It rises and falls with the external atmosphere. So why did God give the law? Because... According to verse 7, I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said envying someone else's property or their spouse or their lifestyle is a sin against God. Some may call it the admirable desire for upward mobility, but God calls it envy, which is a sin, because we will not content ourselves in God's provision and His care for us. That's a sin against God. And so the law identifies and names or even renames our behavior and identifies it for what it is. Or I might say, in calling sin what it is, the law screams at us, jump out of that boiling cauldron, you are dying. Now let's move forward to verse 8. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, this is classic military language. I mean the idea of seizing an opportunity. It means establishing a base of operations in enemy territory. Imagine one army attacking another country. In order to be successful, the invading army needs to establish either a beachhead or a strongly defended base somewhere within the enemy's territory. Once it has that base, it can reinforce that base and bring in thousands of soldiers into that base at will until the strength of the military on that base is so strong, it can attack that country or the other country with the goal of eventually defeating it. Now, says Paul, sin attacked the human race or seized it. But that's not exactly how he expresses himself, is it? He personalizes the matter. Paul is never content to just speak about things in the abstract. He wants to talk about his own personal experience in this matter. And so he says, sin seized me and produced in me all kinds of covetousness. But how did it do that? And it's here that Paul establishes God's second purpose in giving the law. The law not only identifies and names sin, the law actually excites sin. Now, every one of us knows that this is true on a personal level. If the speed limit says 100 kilometers an hour, well, we'll do 110. Now, I get a coffee every morning, and almost every morning, there at the coffee shop, someone is parking on the no-parking space, even though other spaces are readily available. But these are just simplistic examples. Don't envy, for some reason, focuses the mind on envy. Suddenly, I become aware of what envy is in a way that I had not considered. The possibility of coveting finds a welcome place in my thought life, and then it occupies a place in my heart as well. The Heidelberg Catechism gives an interesting interpretation of the Tenth Command. It asks the question, what does the Tenth Commandment require of us? And then it answers it, that not even the slightest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments shall ever rise in our hearts. See, the Heidelberg Catechism says that because it assumes that the Tenth Commandment makes sense of all the rest of the commandments. Because I steal, and I commit adultery, and I even hate my parents out of a sense that there's something other than what I have that I still want. Now, that's well said. But, says Paul, apart from this command, sin lies dead. Paul means to tell us, as he has in this book, that sin in Adam exists in all of us, but that the law gives sin a life and a power that multiplies it exponentially. And so we have seen how it is that God uncomplicates our very sinful lives. First, he names and identifies our behavior so that it becomes stark and unmistakable. It's seen for what it is, and the lies and subterfuge fade away. And then second, God uses this law to show us the full power of the sin that lives in us. And sin springs to life.
0: More when we come back. As we begin to look at what Romans 7 teaches about the life of sin, Paul shows how God actually uses the law in a sense for our benefit. It reveals the objective reality about sin so that we cannot hide from it. The law spells it out for us. And then we realize how powerless we really are in the face of sin. But what can we do? Is this true? How does the despair of recognizing our condition ultimately point us in the direction towards free and holy living? There's more to come with Dr. Neufeld right after the break. thanks for listening today. We believe in the importance of calling people across our nation back to the Bible so that they might know for themselves the real purpose for living and hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's Word is relevant and speaks into every generation and culture. As Wayne Grudem puts it, nowhere in Scripture do we find doctrine studied for its own sake or in isolation from life. If you believe in the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, why not stand with us to further Bible teaching and engagement right across our country? Your prayers and gifts are critical to the growth of this mission and ministry. To donate, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld.
1: When God gave the law and so excited the power of sin, it becomes very easy to see that sin is not something that we can manage as we have foolishly thought we could. Rather, to our horror, we realize that sin controls us. Practically, that means that sin becomes ever so ferocious in a human life when it is condemned by the law. Tell someone they can't do something, and you can guarantee they will. You hear enough, thou shalt nots, and pretty soon you're ready to rebel as never before. Now let's read verses 9 to 11. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came to life and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Now this adds a new twist. Now, to be sure, Paul is not saying that it's only when people have the law that they become sinners. Romans 1 to 3, there he makes plain that sin lives in those who have a law and in those who do not have a law. But he's using graphic language. Let me try to explain that. I remember reading of St. Augustine when he told the story of his life as a boy where he and a group of friends stole some pears from a neighbor's tree. He talks about the excitement of doing something wrong. Now, I remember when I was an 18-year-old young man, my best friend, who had been raised as I had, told me that on one day, he had done something he had never done before. In a room by himself, where no one could hear him, without emotion but in curiosity, he was practicing swearing, using very shocking expletives just to know what it felt like to say them. He told me that after a while, he felt the most freeing and exhilarating sensation, and he told me, for I remember it well to this day, how this changed his life. Some of you remember the first time you broke a commandment. Maybe it was a sexual one, or, or maybe one about stealing or about lying. And when you did it, something sprang to life in you. You literally trembled with excitement. You felt so unrestricted. You felt radical. You felt you were expressing yourself free from the rules. You wanted, if you could, to trumpet it. You could do what you wanted. But you didn't know is that the enemy used the law to establish a military base in your life. And from that day on, you would be enslaved with a struggle with that very sin. See, verse 10 makes it sound so hopeless. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. I was told if I didn't covet, it was life. But the very commandment was seized upon by sin, excited all my flesh, and succeeded in killing me. We could put together two formulas. Christians must see the result of two equations. Here's the first. The flesh plus sin plus the law equals death. I call this the most deadly equation or the most deadly recipe in history. It's more deadly than putting poison into drinking water. This formula results in death every time. And the incredible thing is that this affects people most who try to do the law. If you're dismissive of God's commands in your life, if you ignore God's will, if you're going your own way without even a thought of what God might want you to do, this awareness of your flesh lies dormant. Not that the flesh is not at work, but it is dormant in your awareness. But the minute you try to do God's will, the minute you're remorseful for your sins and want holiness, suddenly and surprisingly, an inner monster arises and seems to come alive and now threatens to destroy you entirely. And that is exactly what so many believers experience, and for some of them, they're left feeling helpless. But there is another formula. I mean, a different one than flesh plus sin plus law equals death. When we get to Romans chapter 8, we will see one that looks like this. New life plus freedom from the law plus the power of the Spirit equals fruit for God. Now, Paul already hinted at that back in Romans chapter 7, verse 6. There he said, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And this needs to be emphasized in the life of every believer. Until you learn the life of the Spirit, you will always try to win the war over sin by using the law, and that will drive you to exhaustion and to despair. It would be so easy now for Paul to very quickly move to the life of the Spirit, but it's important for him not to move on too quickly. He wants to ensure that we utterly despair of all law-keeping as a means of holiness. Furthermore, he also wants us not to walk away from this discussion with the idea that the law is a bad thing. And so he adds verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You know, the great and wonderful feature of the law is that really is a wonderful tool to condemn sin. I remember once receiving a very angry note from a woman who felt all Christians were judgmental. She had begun a sexual relationship with her boyfriend, and she wrote me a note to tell me of the sins of others. How easy, she said it was, to concentrate on her sin, for it was so easy and so out there. But what about the the sin of greed and what about materialism and pride and power plays and hypocritical judgmentalism? What about the log that was in the other's eye, she asked. You know, the crazy thing about her note is that in some ways I couldn't help but agree with her. But all of that was simply to hide her own sin. She was like the frog in the kettle. If she allowed the law to speak to her, she would soon realize that the sins of others were irrelevant to her own situation. The law condemned her. No matter how we squirm on the hook, the fact is that through the law, we are on the hook. The law bears witness to what is holy and what is unholy, what is righteous and what is unrighteous, what is good and what is evil and an affront to God. And all the hypocrisy of others will not hide you from the truth that the law proclaims on your life. All of us will die for our own sins. We will not live by pointing out other sins that they are worse than our own. The law will see to that. Now comes verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. See, Romans 7:13 really is a beautiful and important verse that should even be memorized. God gave the law so that sin would appear to be what it is, utterly sinful or sinful beyond measure. See, the law not only identifies sin in a sense, it quantifies it or measures it in a most objective way. And when it applies the ruler of God's word to our conduct, the law kind of says, well, the tape measure isn't long enough. You are sinful beyond measure. You know, I've seen scales, and so have you, that weigh trucks. In fact, there are ways of weighing ships and even calculating the weight of buildings. But with all of this, this this mountain of my sin, well, it can't be measured. Once you read the law, you will be fundamentally staggered by the weight of sin. It was worse than you would imagine. Your friends told you it wasn't that bad. Your buddies told you everyone was doing it. Your society told you to accept the new morality and the hypocrisy of others assured you that if God is grading on the curve, you're going to hold your own. But then came the law, and it told you that you were worse and blacker and more weighted in sin than you imagined. So I want you to return to verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Let's go back further, all the way back to Romans 6, verse 11. So you must consider yourself or think about yourself in this way, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Alive to God, if anyone is in Christ. He or she is a new creature. We are now free from the law, free from the law as a Jewish way of life, free from the law as condemnation, free from the law as a pathway to forgiveness and holiness. We are truly free. And according to Romans 7 verse 6, we now serve in a new way of the Holy Spirit. It's so important for you, my brother and sister, to continue to listen to this teaching on Romans 5 to 8 because you will find the pathway to the power of God to conquer your sin.
0: John, thanks for another great message. And it's a message that many of us need to hear, but there's got to be some hope here, because sin can feel overwhelming at times. Sure it does. It
1: feels overwhelming for every single believer. Um, But the good news, I suppose, is that when every one of us feels this struggle for sin to be overwhelming, is it helpful to know that this is a normal Christian experience to struggle with sin? That's why it's so important for us to learn the life of the Spirit, because we're all in this same place. And as we continue to weave our way through this book, we'll see why that's so.
0: The Holy Spirit sets us free. Well, what a deep and insightful picture that Paul provides us of what sin actually does to us. We can only see the life of sin through the function of the law. And just when we think all hope is lost— God gives us the answer, living life by the Spirit. That is the true secret of freedom for the Christian. And once we live in the power and guidance of the Spirit, we find that our lives reflect a more joy-filled obedience to God's commands, not a rigid form of rule-keeping. Well, I hope that today's study has spoken to you personally, perhaps given you hope and a new perspective. Keep listening to this series, The Power of the Gospel, as next week we begin to unpack Romans 8 and more about life in the Spirit with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Did you get a chance to listen to Dr. Newfeld's New Year series called Remembering the Second Coming of Jesus? Today there are so many confusing and erroneous teachings about this issue, which is widely misunderstood. Theories about the return of Christ abound, but which one should we pay attention to? Well, this one-week series provides us with a great overview of what every Christian must know about the Second Coming of Jesus. Using a variety of key biblical texts, Dr. Newfeld walks us through what the Word really teaches about issues like, are we really living in the last days? What are the signs of His coming? And many more. But not only that, it's a chance to start the new year reflecting on the reality of what Jesus' coming means for the way we think and how we live. As Dr. Newfeld said, I want people to see how the second coming of Jesus is not just an afterthought, but it's a theme that weaves its way through the entire Bible and is one of the central tenets of our faith. So this month, be sure to order your free CD of this great series. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or send us an email to info at backtothebible.ca.